0: Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Beth Farrell joins us now to provide a year-end wrap-up on case developments impacting design patents and a look ahead to 2022. Beth, thanks for joining us. 2021 was a bit of a quiet year at the Federal Circuit in terms of design cases, but Toward the latter half of the year, the Federal Circuit handed down two important decisions. Let's talk about one of those, which is Campbell Soup Company versus Gammon Plus from August. Can you give us the background on, on this dispute?
1: Sure. So this, uh, this case was related to a pair of IPRs in which the PTAB, or the uh, Patent Trial and Appeal Board, had found the two design patents to be uh, invalid as non-obvious, And this was uh, interesting because this was in view of evidence of commercial success in copying, which was uh, presented to the PTAB, which is not always presented to the PTAB. So that was kind of interesting. Both of the design patents were directed to portions of a gravity feed dispenser for soup cans. You have probably seen these in the store. They uh, they allow customers to select a can of soup, and then another can of soup quickly rolls into its place to replace it. One other uh, benefit of this design is that the uh, the design includes a large convex label area, which makes it easier to see the kinds of soup that are being offered on the shelf. And in this case, the P tab. Determined that a combination of references, which were presented by the petitioner, combined to create the same overall visual appearance as the design. However, uh, the PTAB did look at the cons- at the secondary considerations evidence, which was provided by the patent owner, and it was it was a fair amount of secondary consideration evidence. They the patent owner presented that that Campbell's Soup had purchased over $30 million in dispensers, and they had placed them in as many as 16,000 stores by 2006. It was after that time that Campbell's Soup started buying this same product from another supplier, and that's what led to this particular dispute. There was also evidence that this particular design actually contributed to higher soup sales. So as a result, the PTAB found a nexus between the commercial success and the design and decided not to invalidate the claim.
0: Okay, and what happened on appeal?
1: Well, on appeal, the Federal Circuit reversed the PTAB. And what they found was no uh they found it was on the nexus point, and they made two separate findings. One was that there was no presumption of nexus, and the other was that there was no nexus in fact. So on the presumption of nexus, the court cited to the Fox Factory versus SRAM case, noting that, quote, a presumption of nexus exists between the asserted evidence of secondary considerations and a patent claim if the patentee shows that the asserted evidence is tied to a specific product and that that product is the invention disclosed and claimed." End quote. So here, it seems the evidence was tied to the specific product, the gravity feed dispenser. But there was an issue that arose about whether or not the specific product, the gravity dispenser, was the invention that was disclosed and claimed. As I mentioned earlier, only a portion of the gravity feed dispenser was actually claimed. Specifically. It was the the sort of landing section where the soup landed after it rolled down, as well as the label area. So it was essentially the front of the gravity dispenser that was claimed. The sides and back were not claimed. What the court found here, noting that there's certain uh, case law, which says the presumption is not presumed where the patented invention is only a component of the commercially successful machine or process. And so, as I noted, since only a portion of the design was actually part of the claim, the uh, Federal Circuit found that a presumption of nexus was not appropriate here. So then they turned to the uh, nexus in fact, and again, uh, they noted that a patentee may establish a nexus absent the presumption by showing the objective indicia of secondary considerations are the direct result of unique characteristics of the claimed invention. So. When I first read this line, the very first thing I thought of was the point of novelty test, which was the old half, one half of the old infringement test that was done away with by the Federal Circuit in 2008. So I found that to be kind of an interesting point for the Federal Circuit to be making because it sounds like they're, they could be resurrecting the point of novelty, at least with respect to um, nexus in fact. And in this case, the court interpreted that phrase unique characteristics to be features that distinguish the claimed invention from the prior art. And the uh, the court here selected the label element. It's interesting because they they selected a single element. Like I said, it would, sounds like point of novelty instead of focusing on the way in which the overall visual impression might vary from the prior art. So I think the takeaways from this are two. Moving forward, it's important not to rely on the presumption of nexus. I think it's important to go ahead and establish nexus. And when you're doing that, you want to make sure that you are introducing evidence that does establish that connection between the claim design, whether it's a portion of the product or in the entire product, and the secondary, the evidence of secondary considerations that you introduce. Great. Well, let's talk
0: about that second case, Enri Surgisil. What was the key holding from the Federal Circuit in this decision?
1: So the inray surgical decision was very short. It was only three and a half pages long. Uh, This case was decided in December 2021. But even though it's a short case, I think it's a very important one. Uh, This case involved a design for a lip implant. Uh, Imagine something that looks a little bit like a pencil that's sharpened on both ends The PTAB had affirmed the examiner's uh, anticipation rejection over an art tool called a stump. And the stump actually looks also like a pencil that has been sharpened on both ends. Uh, The stump tool is made of a, a tightly woven paper and it's used for smoothing and blending large areas areas of uh, pastel or charcoal so it's an art tool and the designs do look pretty similar the lip implant is a bit shorter and has a bit wider diameter but otherwise i think it's fair to say that they have a, a they have substantially the same overall visual impression which is the test for anticipation in a design case so at the PTAB, and again at the federal circuit the applicant argued that this stump tool despite the fact that it it has a similar appearance could not anticipate the claim design because it was for a very different article of manufacture. And that argument did not work at the PTAB. The PTAB did not accept this argument. They rejected this argument based on their longstanding understanding that whether a reference is analogous art is irrelevant to whether the reference anticipates. The PTAB also reasoned that it's appropriate to ignore the identification of the article of manufacture in the claim language. On appeal, the Federal Circuit took issue with this second statement from the PTAB. Uh, They did not, in fact, address the analogous art issue, but rather focused on the PTAB's statement that it was appropriate to ignore the identification of the article of manufacture in the claim language. The Federal Circuit said that this was not appropriate because the design claim is limited to the article of manufacture identified in the claim. And for this proposition of law, the Federal Circuit cited the Curver Luxembourg versus Home Expressions case, which was from 2019. And I think this is interesting because I think that the Curver case could have been reasonably read in a different way. So uh, in the Curver case, there was a situation in which the applicant amended their claim in order to get the claim allowed. And so the thinking, and this was mentioned in the Kerver case, that that this was prosecution history estoppel that kept the applicant from enjoying the broader claim scope. But what's interesting in the Surgisil case was that the Federal Circuit has now pulled out, um, not the prosecution history estoppel argument, but rather this idea that the claim is limited by the article of manufacture, as being the holding from Curver, which they were applying not in the infringement context as they did in Curver, but now in the anticipation context as they did in sergisil
0: hmm. So so why is the this decision and, and re so important?
1: Well, it really means probably there are going to be some pretty important changes in the prosecution of design patents. Typically, it's been important to pick your title because uh, by regulation, your title must be used in your claim. So whatever you call your article of manufacture in the title is the same way that you have to refer to it in the claim. But typically that title or claim identification was used for searching and classifying your design. Now it seems that this claim is going to be or this title that you pick is going to be much more important. You know, in a design patent, it's the the claim is not, a, as I like to say, it's not a creative writing exercise. It is the ornamental design for a widget as shown and described. And I think that prior to this line of cases, really what was important was the shown part. What have you shown in your drawings? Now it seems that it's not only going to be what you show in your drawings, but also what you decide to call your widget. And you know, the PTO has always used that title as a way to classify their uh, designs. So at the start of prosecution, they look at it and they say, "Okay, you're claiming a, you know, a refrigerator. We're going to put this in the appliance classification, and that determines which examiner you get and things like that. But it was traditionally used for organizing and searching. It was not used to necessarily limit the scope of the claim. And I'll give you an example, for example, and and sometimes it was actually dual classification if the PTO felt like it it uh, should fall into more than one category. For example, there are a whole line of of patents that are directed to a motor vehicle and or a toy replica. And uh, these are this is this sort of relates to the fact that, you know, you can get a Um, You can have a, a design patent for a Mustang, but then there's also the matchbox cars, which are just the same thing, just smaller, right? They can both be protected by the same design patent. And traditionally, the PTO would actually just dual classify these. They would classify them under D12 for transportation, and they would also classify them under D21 for toys. And it'll be interesting to see if this practice can continue. I think what may happen is a particularly careful a uh, design prosecution attorney is going or or patent agent is going to possibly say, Well, I'm gonna need to list more than one article of manufacture in my claim. I'm gonna need to say that it's going to be a design for if I have a handle for actually, for example, it might be a design for a handle for a rake, or a design for a handle for a snow shovel, or a design for a handle for you know, something else, if I want to have maybe a line of garden tools that all have the same handle. And when you do that, if you if you list them out like that, I think it's possible that the patent office might give you a restriction requirement. They might say, oh, it's not a different design, but in fact, it's a different article of manufacture. So now I need to give you, I need to force you to file multiple applications. So I think that's one thing that might happen. Alternatively, depending on how the PTO decides to deal with this decision, the opposite might happen. A very careful patent attorney might actually file three separate applications that all cover the same design, just with a different uh, title and a different claim. And then there w- it would be interesting to see if the patent office issues a double patenting rejection, asking the applicant to file a terminal disclaimer to overcome this, this type of rejection. So I think it's going to be it's gonna it's gonna have some ripple effects in prosecution in a way that um, might not be obvious at first blush. And then I think the second thing is is that this continues to move U.S. practice away from European practice. Uh, for a long time, the U.S. and Europe we had I would say more in common than we did that was different. But it's very clear in Europe that classification doesn't matter. What matters is what you include in the scope of your design. So it's all about the design. It's not about what you call the design. But the United States has been moving away from that. Prior to 2015, at least it was the PTO's position looking in the MPEP that the title of the design was used to identify the article, but it it did not define the scope of the claim that was in the MPEP prior to 2015. In 2015, even without a change in the law, Uh, the PTO started to change its position. And it later said that the title of the design may contribute to defining the scope of the claim. And now it seems as though the federal circuit has actually caught up with this change in in PTO thinking. And I think that, I think the PTO could make this this statement stronger in the MPEP, and I think they could cite the Surgisil case for support.
0: Hmm. Well, we'll have to see how that plays out. A lot of interesting implications. Moving on, let's discuss what's on deck for 2022. First, it seems that the Columbia Sportswear North America Inc. versus Sirius case is coming back after a second jury verdict. What do you expect from that case?
1: Yeah, so this one I think is one that is is hotly anticipated. If you all may recall, the district court granted summary judgment of infringement a few years ago. And in a previous appeal, the federal circuit overturned that holding. The federal circuit decided that the district court erred in failing to consider the defendant's brand name on the accused product. So in this particular case, the um, Columbia has a design patent to a particular fabric pattern, and it's kind of a, a wavy uh, black, white, and gray fabric pattern, and what Cirrus has done is used a similar pattern but they have the word Cirrus repeated many, many times. Think of it as like the Louis Vuitton bag where they use the logo as part of the design. And so uh, in the first case, the district court had relying on a case from 1993, the LA Gear case. Originally, the district court had not considered that logo because under the LA Gear case, uh, the federal circuit had said that clear and prominent labeling could not you couldn't do that to avoid design patent infringement and so the uh, district court was relying on that uh, that thinking in not considering the logo the first time around but what the court said in the first appeal of columbia was that the la gear case did not prohibit the fact finder from considering what they called an ornamental logo so i think that's supposed to perhaps be different from a a logo that is i, I suppose used for source identification uh, so Columbia went back to the district court and uh, they went to a second. This time they went to a second jury. The first jury verdict was about damages. Now they had a jury verdict the second time that was about infringement. And there uh, Columbia had asked for certain jury instructions associated with this, you know, labeling to a, you, you can't use labeling to avoid patent infringement. And the district court did not allow those jury instructions. And then the jury found no infringement. So what uh, Columbia is expected to argue in their briefs is that this failure to give this jury instruction is not harmless error and that they should get a new trial as a result. But what's interesting is, is that this uh, issue has morphed a little bit beyond just consideration of the logo. It's now expanded into a bit of a larger question, and that question is whether actual or likely deception or actual or likely confusion as to the the source of the infringing product, whether that's something that should be considered in design patent cases. I think traditionally those ideas about source identification have been the province of trademark law and that design patents have not been about what actual consumers either thought or or thought was likely to happen to actual consumers. Instead, it was a question about this, you know, sort of hypothetical ordinary observer and what that hypothetical ordinary observer would find in terms of comparing the two designs. So it'll be interesting to see whether accused infringers can argue going forward that because actual customers will not be deceived about whose product they are purchasing because of the logos that are on those products, should that be something that's considered in a design patent case? Again, this is a very important issue and it will be very interesting to see what happens. The briefing should be completed by spring, but it's, we're already seeing this affect other things. There was a, a recent dispute between uh, Peloton and Lululemon over sports bras, and this argument was actually advanced by Peloton as part of that dispute. So we know that this is a hot topic and one that will come up in other cases.
0: All right. Definitely a development to keep an eye on. We'll leave it there. Thank you for your analysis, Beth. Our guest has been Beth Farrell, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.